G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now today, I would very much like to introduce you to Michael Wood, who is doing a PhD in neuroscience under the supervision of Dr. Gordon Boyd. So welcome to Grad Chat, Michael. Hi, thank you. Now, your research topic is, and it's a bit of a long one, actually, <laughs> low levels of brain tissue oxygenation during critical illness may be associated with the subsequent development of delirium and cognitive impairment. So just so you know, everybody, neuros well, tell me, what is neuroscience? Maybe we should start off with that. Well, just broadly speaking, you're studying different aspects of the brain. So whether this is sensory, motor, cognitive. Um, so it's really all-encompassing is a very broad field. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that research that you are doing? Basically, it's a clinical trial currently being run at KGH, or Kingston Health Science Center now. And we're currently the largest uh, study ever conducted for my PhD. It was a single center study strictly in Kingston, but we were the largest study to look at using near-infrared spectroscopy and measuring brain tissue oxygenation in critically ill patients or patients on life support and seeing if that was associated with the development of delirium and then long-term dysfunction at 3 and 12 months after their discharge from the ICU. So we're talking then about those, like you said, those have been on life support for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But how long on life support are you talking about? Or is this not rele relevant in your research? So we try to get to people within the first 24 hours of being on life support. We're, our overall hypothesis is really looking at, is there some sort of hypoxic or ischemic brain injury in terms of they don't have adequate blood and oxygen supply to the brain? Okay. And that this happens early on when they're in life support. And we want to get to that and detect it and see if that's associated with uh, long-term impairment. Okay. The other part that you were talking about when you're talking about long-term impairment, are you mm -hmm. talk, I'm assuming you're talking about looking at delirium. So what is delirium? Okay, uh, delirium is actually the acute uh, or short-term impairment that we're talking about. So it's uh, acute and fluctuating course of basically inattention, altered levels of consciousness, and or disorganized thinking. So basically they can be either alert and calm, which we would classify as about roughly zero, or they're on the positive or negative spectrum. Negative, they're basically hypoactive. So they might have their eyes open, they might sort of follow you around the room, but they're not really there uh, when you're talking to them. They can't answer basic logic questions, but they are awake. Um, and then, or they go to the full extreme spectrum of the negative where they're basically comatose, completely unresponsive and unaware. But that's... So that's delirium? Yeah, that's the oh. hypoactive delirium. But then we have hyper where they're on the positive spectrum where they could be aggressive and combative. You know, they're pulling out lines. They're potentially fighting with nurses. Uh, okay, right. Because that's, that's more of what I thought delirium is, where mm. they're getting these psychotic episodes and doing some wacko things. Well, that's really, again, just the hyperactive. It's more right. common that they're hypo, where they'll just kind of be sitting there potentially staring off into space and very confused and can't answer logic questions. So we go in when we scream and ask, you know, something very simple, does one pound weigh more than two pounds? And they'll even struggle with a question like that. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So why is this problematic? 
Uh, it's really problematic due to the fact that upwards of 80% of patients in the ICU have delirium, and it's associated with all sorts of terrible outcomes, whether it's increased risk of death, increased ventilator times, increased length of hospital stay, the list really goes on and on. And worse off, if they have uh, delirium, if they have increased frequency, so you know, one day, two days, three days in a row, this basically has a dose-response relationship in terms of impairment after they leave the ICU. I just got to try to understand. So people on life support are there for different reasons, right? Yep. Would this make a difference, whether they've been artificially put into a coma or...? Um, I mean, that's part of what we're really trying to figure out is, is coma and delirious and in neurologically intact separate from one another? We were the first group to really show that uh, patients with low brain tissue oxygenation are more likely to develop delirium. So it was an independent predictor of delirium, which has never been shown before. So it was really exciting for our work. Uh, we also identified that um, fentanyl uh, equivalents, so basically any of the narcotic dosing that goes into a, a calculation, we can basically just condense it all down to equivalents right. of fentanyl. That was also associated with the development of delirium. So if you increase this medication dosing, you were potentially more likely to become delirious. I'm going to go back again mm -hmm. a little bit. So if you're looking at the oxygen levels, yeah. low oxygen levels, more chances of them being, getting deli being delirious. Yeah, if, that's if I got correct. that correct, I just yep. want to make sure I'm on the right track. Yeah, uh, that's basically what we're saying, right? When you come in, there's this disruption potentially in blood and oxygen delivery, which we detect using our near-infrared spectroscopy, which shows up as a percent, so from 0 to 99%, and that says how much oxygen is in the brain. So when that's low, we found out that people were more likely to uh, be delirious throughout the majority of their ICU stay. And with that then, so if their oxygen levels are low, apart from being more, more prone for, to get delirious mm -hmm. or be in the delirium state, what does that matter if they come out the other end okay? Um, well, basically that's part of the huge problem is that 50 years ago or so, basically what we were thinking is if you survived your ICU stay, we had basically done our job. And I say that speaking as a clinician standpoint. I'm not a clinician, but that's basically what I've right. read. Nowadays, we're really thinking, okay, it's also about quality of life when you leave the ICU, which is a big part of our research as well, to see what happens during care, how does that lead up to negative or positive outcomes when people leave the hospital. So if they have low brain tissue oxygenation, they develop delirium, does that lead to a worse profile in terms of memory impairment, language impairment, etc.? So we also test motor as well. That's a common problem. And they're basically lumped into what we call post-intensive care syndrome, where they might have psychological complications. They might have motor. Uh, it's really widespread, and we're starting to see that it's a huge problem. And Kingston's actually one of the few areas in Canada where we have a post-intensive care unit clinic at the hospital. Oh, we do? Mm -hmm. Oh, God, we've got everything here. Yeah, we? it seems like we're it. Very, very lucky, aren't we? <laughs> You mentioned in, I think, in your introduction to us, a word called brain perfusion. Mm -hmm. What What is brain perfusion? Uh, so that's basically the principle of like I was talking about in terms of oxygen delivery, exchange of nutrients. You're basically trying okay. to make sure that you're preserving that brain tissue. So you need to make sure you delivered oxygen and blood and all the different nutrients you need to remain functioning. So far, we've been talking more about the oxygen, mm -hmm. what about the blood? Is that part of the delirium process or is it totally separate or do we need both? 
blood has hemoglobin and things in it, right? So we're trying to measure that too. Like our my thesis is really, really broad in terms of uh, assessing different things. So the main outcome really is delirium. But again, using this technology, since we saw that people had low brain tissue oxygenation, we want to make this technology applicable. The same way when you go into the ICU and we put pulse oximetry on your finger, we want to be able to do this for the brain. Because all that tells you is oxygen in the periphery that's delivered by your arteries. We right. don't know what's actually going on in the brain. Right. So we're trying to use that to say this is what's actually happening. And if it's a sticker that we can just put on someone's forehead, why wouldn't we be doing that like we're doing with arterial oxygen saturation? And when people are in the ICU, we also get a wealth of data in terms of arterial or venule blood gases. And that's where we can look at different, uh, you know, PCO2, pH, different uh, chemicals in terms of the blood. And like you were suggesting, hemoglobin, we can also yeah. look at that. So part of my thesis was also developing, if we're going to use near-infrared spectroscopy in the ICU, do these markers of tissue oxygenation that clinicians normally use relate to this signal? Okay, so... You've you brought in a beautiful little diagram for me, mm -hmm. and, and I know you can't see this, everyone. So <laughs> sorry about that. It is really nice, although it's not in color. It would have been nice in color, but <laughs> <laughs> you talk about putting little spots oh, to be able to measure. Yeah, right? sensors. Yeah, little sensors. So how how is that working? What is it trying to do? How far in is it going? I mean, I'm assuming if you're looking at the brain, you need to mm -hmm. at least reach the brain to see what's going <laughs> on there. But you've got to get through the skull and everything else. So how are these little transmitters? Or is, and is this part of this infrared spectrometry? Spec yeah, uh, so near-infrared spectroscopy is basically... I'm going to say that word, spectroscopy. I'm going <laughs> to get it right. It's a tough one. <laughs> it is a tough one. Um, so basically it's a five-centimeter sensor that we place on the patient's forehead just with an adhesive sticker. Uh, and we can leave it there. We've left it up to 72 hours straight of continuous monitoring. Mm -hmm. And basically what it does is it has an emitter that puts out different wavelengths of near-infrared light. The current one uses five different wavelengths based on how hemoglobin absorbs oxygen or deoxygenated hemoglobin. Okay. right. And you have a shallow detector and a deep detector. So basically the deep detector goes down to brain tissue and the shallow uh, basically gets anything in between the scalp and the brain itself. And then through a proprietary algorithm, they basically use these two signals to generate an absolute percentage. But why do you need to know what's going on through the skull part? Uh, you're, you're taking that out of the signal to say that you actually don't want this in your absolute percentage because okay. then it's going to be influenced by the scalp. Okay. You want directly brain tissue. So with this then, I mean, I know you said you were working with KGH. How do you get permission to do all of that? So because your ethics approval must have been huge. <laughs> I got really lucky that they got ethics approval before I came here. So right. they had already collected about six patients or so. And then I was brought on board to really uh, move this forward as my PhD project. Uh, we also have a really amazing team of research coordinators in the ICU. Uh, it's a 33-bed ICU. So, I mean, if I was solely responsible for doing all this, uh, I wish I could take credit for that, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> I would be in there all day trying to screen people to see if they can be in the program. Because, uh, again, we didn't want to assess children. Right. Uh, very complicated for this type of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had to exclude people with brain damage and that sort of thing because it might interfere with our signal. Okay, so before you carry on then, how can you detect they've got the brain damage? Uh, well, that's first. just going to come from the clinical diagnosis. Okay, so you're leaving it up to the doctors to say, yep. this person's out of you. 
Yeah, the resource coordinators will sit there uh, during rounds and basically go through and get the okay from the clinicians. Okay. Say they've gone into the coma, mm -hmm. coma stage, mm -hmm. how are you going to get their permission? Is that when the family says yes or no? Yeah, so we actually have a deferred consent. So since it's non-invasive technology and it's just a sticker, uh, they can come into the ICU and we'll, we can just record for the first 24 hours because it's really a difficult time with the family. You know, right. someone just came in, their loved one's super sick. It's really hard to approach them and say, well, do you mm -hmm. want to be part of a research study? It'd be really good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and despite the fact that it'll help with medicine, mm -hmm. you really have to kind of wait and gauge when's the appropriate time. Right. And then we go to the decision maker of the family uh, whether it's the wife, brother, whatever, depending on the situation, and acquire informed consent. Uh, what we also do is when the patient finally wakes up, we also, again, go back to reassess and say, you know, you were your uh, decision maker said this was okay, but we want to make sure it's fine with you that we use this data and that you come back for follow-up. Right, right. And the follow-up again, you're saying, was it three and six months? Yep. And so how, what do you do on the follow-up? Because you still put stickers on their heads or are you doing something different? Uh, so this is where we administer basically a multimodal data collection platform. So we do traditional paper and pencil testing, and this is called the repeatable battery for the assessment of neuropsychological status, or R-bands. And basically it assesses different cognitive domains such as immediate and delayed memory, uh, attention, visual spatial construction skills, and language. Mm -hmm. All relevant, they seem to be impaired in survivors of critical illness. So we assess those domains. On top of that, uh, we use the KinArm robot, which was invented here at Queen's. Yes, You've probably heard about yes. it. Um, and again, this assesses some similar areas, uh, different tasks um, using robotics, but now we can also assess motor impairment as well, because many people, if you think about it, I mean, they might be in a bed seven days, 30 days, they're going to have potential muscle atrophy and all sorts of muscle complications. So we really want to quantify that type of impairment as well to really give a full characterization of the post-intensive care syndrome. And I guess what you're looking at, particularly when you're looking from in the hospital to three months into six months, is have they managed to improve, if there was any deficiencies, have they improved the longer they've been out? Yeah, looking at the three and 12 months, again, we really just want to see if they improve from three to 12. But it was really complicated because you get all of these people that our youngest, I think, was 30, and one of our oldest was about 98. Oh, wow. So a broad spectrum, and you're trying mm -hmm. to get these people to come back. We had a massive dropout rate. Right. We only got about 40% actually return, which is still isn't too bad for the first you know trial that's ever done this. Um, so we really had to move forward and try to implement retention strategies to get people to come back. Um, so now we really try to help people and say, if you've been in the ICU and we're going to bring you back for this intensive care uh, follow-up, can we at the same time see how you're doing in terms of research purposes? Because if we can map out and say, hey, you know, people's memory tends to get worse at 12 months, or this specific person, this is memory that is affected, we can start to try to tailor fit strategies to really help that person specifically. So I'm going to go back again a little mm -hmm. bit. So just because someone's got low oxygen levels in the brain while they're in the ICU or on life support because mm -hmm. it all comes down to those people on life support, right? Yep. Um, so they've they've shown they've got low oxygen levels. There's some of them will show delirium, mm -hmm. and then am I assuming then from those that when they do come out of this, come out of the ICU off life support, there's the potential then for whether it's uh, 
neurological or physical issues. Mm-hmm. And then, but are you trying to associate which ones are associated with the low oxygen levels in the first place, or? We, that was the main goal. We really wanted to do that, but because so many people weren't able to return, we right. weren't able to assess that. So we did show that low brain tissue oxygenation was associated with delirium, right? which was super, super exciting since it hadn't been shown before. But then because of that dropout, we just couldn't assess it in long-term follow-up. Okay. Because again, we're still trying to take all those variables and say, what happened in the ICU? Um, I mean, there's a lot of news on, you know, fentanyl and drugs like that. Mm-hmm. We want to know how that affects care down the road and benzodiazepines and see if that's associated with three and 12 months. Because again, too, even if we have those variables, is does it change from three and 12 months? Is there different variables that affect three more than 12, etc.? And can we really broadly at this stage develop uh, basically a characterization of the type of impairment that people typically have at three and 12 months? And what we did see was mostly uh, visual, spatial, and constructional impairment, as well as some uh, minor motor impairment. Okay, so the eyesight was an issue for Uh, some of them. Potentially more of how they interpret, yeah, seeing. Yeah, the hand-eye coordination stuff. Yeah, potentially. It's really hard. uh, It's broadly kind of classified as seeing that. So we don't know directly what they're impaired on. Because we get tons of metrics uh, with the kin arm. So there's about 6 to 20 per task, depending right. on what you're doing. And I basically looked at their global performance rather than specific nitty-gritty mm-hmm. um, kind of analysis. And that's where we could see, broadly speaking, these areas were impaired. So it would be kind of exciting uh, to go back and look at individual levels and see if there's specific kind of uh, impairments, whether it be reaction time or uh, just movement errors and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, But again, with such a small population, it's really hard to go and look at those smaller areas. Because would you also have to take into account how long they were on life support? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So we kind of do that as well, just in typical kind of statistics where you say if they one person was delirious for one day and one was for 10 days, well, was it because the person that was on for 10 days, were they in the ICU 30 days and the other person was there too? Right. So we can mathematically account for that to make sure that that's not some confounding error in our analysis. That's important. Yeah. You brought up a really important (laughs) issue. (laughs) Get out of there quickly, people. Get out quick. So, so what are the future directions then of this particular research? Because I could see quite a few, and mm-hmm. just in a general term, but what, I mean, you've been talking with physicians and things who, who are on the front line of seeing what's going on. And then, of course, then there's the families, what they see when people come out of hospital. So what, what is the future direction um, so basically, currently, throughout my PhD dissertation, we started with a feasibility study, you know, could we use this technology in the ICU? So we had 10 patients, and we already saw that delirium was predicted by low brain tissue oxygenation. Right. And then we moved forward with developing the protocol to say, like, we were the first ones to do this, this is how we did it. And then the single center study that I've spoke about. And now using all this information, as well as the follow-up study, it helped me design a multi-center study, which is what we're trying to publish now, which will be going across Canada. Because we started and said, okay, this is what we saw in people from Kingston and surrounding areas. We want to see across Canada, are we going to see similar results? So basically, we're going to be doing a very similar protocol, but now including some people that have potential cognitive impairment that was already pre-existing because we excluded okay. some of those people. Right, right. Um, so now we can just screen for it. And kind of like I said before, you just adjust for it mathematically to say this might not be new impairment. They were already impaired, but they potentially got worse or got better. 
That must be hard though, because how do you know someone's got a cognitive impairment before going in? You may, they may not know themselves. We'll basically be doing a scale that basically assesses for dementia. Whereas before we just use clinical notes. So we right. would look through and then sometimes ask family members as well to say, hey, uh, we didn't see anything in the notes because we have all the doctor's notes, whether it's their GP, the okay. attending team in the hospital. Right. And then you can assess with the family as well. Now, have you found with the ones that you've managed to test so far? I mean, I, I know the region is Kingston, but I, I wonder whether people's not cultural backgrounds, but, you know, Caucasian, Asian, mm -hmm. Indigenous. Does that make a difference? Has, have you seen that or could that make a difference? Or is that just look opening up uh, too much, making it too difficult to look at the differences? Because it could also be, for instance, even in Kingston, the geography in Kingston. Are you coming from this part of Kingston mm -hmm. or this part? And I'm talking about people's whether they can eat properly and stuff like that. I mean, are those things showing up or is it too early to be able, or would it be too big a job to try and do that? Ooh, that's a really tough it's, question. It, it is, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's fine. Because um, so, I imagine people's makeup is very different, right? And some mm -hmm. of it's to do with nutrition. Yeah, well. And others to do with their background. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a really important question, which is why you do the multi-center study to say, okay, we're gonna go across all these different regions because Kingston was mostly Caucasian. Yeah. So in doing that study, even though it's interesting results, like you're saying, how will it generalize essentially to the broader public? Super, super important. And that's why we're moving forward with this bigger study. Uh, we have found things such as uh, alcohol abuse, the history of alcohol abuse right. was another predictor of delirium as well. And that's been kind of consistently found in many studies. Would that show up those on those precognitive assessment that you did? Yeah, you would basically see it in terms of uh, doctor's notes. So now we're trying right. to do it a bit more formally and assess it ourselves. Uh, but before we were just using clinical charts. So again, conducting research in the ICU, you have years and years of information. Right. We have all their GP information to see again if you know they were administered dementia testing or anything like that. So we have a huge history to go through to make sure we can include this patient and try to cut out any of those confounding issues. But like you're saying, I think moving forward, again, we have to say there has been some small studies to show that potentially skin color affects how we uh, absorb near-infrared light, and right. that could potentially affect our signal. So, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. This photo near-infrared spectroscopy. Yeah, so we need to make sure <laughs> that, <practicing>. yeah, <laughs> that skin pigmentation um, isn't affecting this signal moving forward, because that's a super drawback if mm -hmm. uh, we don't account for it. We don't want to just have this technology for Caucasians. We need to make sure it applies to everybody. It was interesting you mentioned alcohol because I guess a similar thing with the various narcotics that are available these days. But I guess that's something that you could weed out of your research study for now if people have been on drugs for too long or anything like that. Because it depends on how, you know, why people are in on life support right now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's ooh, big, big questions today. <laughs> that's a big part of the literature that's potentially a problem is we lump everybody into critically ill. And it's mm. such a heterogeneous patient population, which is essentially what you're saying. Um, how do you account for these things? So, I mean, really, when you're reporting a study, you do the demographics. So you could say this is what people were admitted for, people that had a history of whatever, right. whether it's hypertension, that sort of thing, uh, drug withdrawal, whatever you want to include. 
But at the end of the day, you're basically again lumping them all together. So that's why you try to get as many people as possible. So statistically, you can say, well, we're going to account for, you know, a history of drug abuse. We're going to account for this and that and then see what kind of happens. So that'll be the power of moving forward with our multi-center study is mm -hmm. we're going to aim for 500 people. We had 100 for my Ph.D. thesis, which is still a really large that study. That is a large study, yeah. yeah. But at least now we'll be able to really include more of these comorbidities and potentially confounds in our analysis. Can I add one more thing there? Um, with the, the 100 that you've tested or using in your um, research right now, what is the breakdown between male and female? Because sometimes gender can have a huge difference too in how our body responds to different things. Uh, it's about a 60-40 split male to female. Well, it's not too bad then. Yeah, so it's pretty equal. That's a hot topic, too. I mean, when you fill out a CIHR application now, they really want to know, are you including sex, gender, right. and how this could affect uh, medicine moving forward? We really don't address it too much other than including it in the analysis. But again, really with 100 people, if you do your overall analysis, you have that power to statistically detect something. If you right. put it down into male and female, and then you put it, it down, harder. you know, between ages 30 and 40, yeah, you you know, you have right. 10 people per group or something like that. So I think moving forward, that's a really important question to ask, because again, potentially even oxygenation in the brain, are there differences in levels in terms of what a male typically has versus a female, mm -hmm. and how do we address that? And then, like you're saying too, a whole can of worms in terms of how does a female respond to drugs versus a man? Right. See, it becomes I'm, a complex question. <laughs> I'm giving you lots of work here. Yeah, aren't I, I got to write this down. It's a good postdoc right there. <laughs> and I knew nothing about this stuff. I promise. <laughs> so, okay, so I think you've actually told us an awful lot about what you're trying to do, haven't you? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. And I think um, what I think what is nice is that you've been able to start here in Kingston, but now you're able to look at it across the country or be able mm -hmm. to put it across the country to see if things are happening the same way or not. So it's going to help a lot of people. I hope so. I mean, it's really exciting and hard at the same time because we have a new person in the lab that'll be the uh, PhD MD taking over my project. So, right. you know, it kind of feels like someone's taking it away from you, like it's your baby and you don't want to... <laughs> keep in there a little bit? Yeah. Well, it'll <laughs> well you, always... wanna, you could write yeah. your paper, so you don't have yeah. to do that. Well, and they, they seem super dedicated to right. it, so it's really nice well, to just be good. like, here you go. We wrote it together, take it away. Are the physicians that you've been working with, are they excited about some of your results and things so far? I mean, I or guess... the potential, the potential. Yeah, I think really the potential at this stage, because um, we've shown it's feasible to do in the ICU. Right. We're showing these really fascinating results. This research really started in cardiac surgery, where they would oh. monitor brain tissue oxygenation throughout surgery and showed, again, if you had low brain tissue oxygenation, you might have a worse outcome after surgery. Right. And they've developed an algorithm to optimize um, brain tissue oxygenation in the cardiac operating theater, but not in the ICU. Okay, so right. I think people get really excited when they think, you know, five, ten years down the road, the more we study this in the ICU, um, will we be able to develop an algorithm to resuscitate people and make sure they actually have adequate brain tissue oxygenation right. in the ICU? Right. So and that's get, kind so of the long term. So then they can make a full, proper full recovery. That's what we're hoping, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I'll be moving forward to with this project across Canada, but I'll be going for a postdoc soon in BC to kind of assess similar things in cardiac arrest, which will be really exciting Fantastic. as well. Yeah, trying to really use, again, the same technology in a different setting and 
That'd be nice. Oh, I hope so. And improve outcomes among patients. That's really what we're interested in, right? Well, I think, um, I mean, if this all works out the way that you're hoping it is, it will be fantastic for everybody mm -hmm. to help us along the way. Well, even here in town, they did a study which basically said um, elderly people in the hospital were more interested in the neurological outcomes rather than just surviving the ICU. Right. So I think if we can improve quality of life for people once they leave here, yes. We basically did our job. And I think as a researcher, I can't try to think of anything better to study. No, quality of life is important for all of us. Okay, well, you got a good one there. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we are going to stop because, yes, we are over, which is fantastic. Um, so thank you for that. Well, um, thank you. It's, a, it's a, a great topic. And like I said, I'm pretty sure both the physicians in the hospitals as well as the patients are looking forward to the results and what can be used along the way. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, SoundCloud or CFRC. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.